Welcome to ISCI's Oceanside Chat, a new LITE. Oceanside Chat was created to inspire, motivate, provide insight, and educate students through industry professionals sharing personal stories, career aspirations, and practical advice. In this episode, we chatted with Michael Kuba, who is the Chief Operating Officer and VP Engineering at Shaper Tools. Michael is a product development leader who has led hardware, systems engineering, and operation teams across multiple industries, including wearables, robotics, and consumer electronics. Time to get your feet wet in the business world and join us down by the water as we have an Oceanside chat. Part 1. Who, what, how. So hello everyone, good afternoon. My name is Helen Wang. I'm a professor at UC San Diego. I'm teaching a newly designed version of the Innovation to Market class at the Rady School of Management. Today is October 20, 2021, Wednesday afternoon. Today is actually also our first Zoom session with more than 90 students online. Together, we are thrilled to record live in the classroom for the third episode of the Oceanside Chat, a new LITE focusing on qualities like leadership, innovation, technology, and entrepreneurship. Our guest today is my dear friend and ex-colleague from two of the three companies I worked for, Michael Kuba. Hello, Michael. Welcome Hi. to class. And thank you for meeting our talented student at UC San Diego. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. Great. Um, so as a host, my role is to ask you a lot of questions, including tough questions from our students. And to make it more fun, I will plan a few minutes for you to ask me only one question. So you can thinking about now, you know, and we will do that accordingly later. I like to kind of asking the question for the student get know you better. It's really a small word after all. LinkedIn actually keeps reminding me that you and I both worked at Apple and Google. I'm curious about your biggest takeaway from each company. What have you learned, you know, the journey that you have spent over there? At Apple is where I probably formed most of my experience around product design. It was the first chance that I got to see a product all the way through from concept all the way to production. At the time, I was working on a project. The key project that sticks out to me is the aluminum Apple remote that I was working on. And it was just really resource constrained. And so I had to jump in and be, you know, product design lead, but also project manager and fly to China and camp out there and be my own manufacturing engineer. And it was a, such an interesting experience for me to kind of learn all of those different elements. And then, of course, working with the industrial design group was really amazing. And having access to some of the most creative designers in the world was really fun. Yeah, I feel like Apple was really a great experience for me to learn the basics of product development and seeing things all the way through, like what goes into actually building a great product. Google, very similar experience in terms of product development. But I probably learned the most outside of product development at Google and kind of what goes into the operations sides of things, the business and sales side. We also were trying to build a hardware organization in a company that was really software driven. You know, I learned how to try my best to explain why we do certain things and challenge my assumptions about why does production take a certain period of time. As you know, we were trying to convince Sergey that he has to wait six or eight weeks to release tooling and explain exactly why that is. Very, very drastically different experiences. One was a hardware company, one was at its core a software company, but yeah, it took away some good things from both. That's awesome. Thanks for sharing that. People say, you know, life is a journey, not a destination. You have had an impressive journey so far. So in addition to Apple and Google, you also worked for an innovative car company in Silicon Valley about 10 years ago. 
Could you tell us more about that? So after Apple, in between Apple and Google, I worked at Tesla and I was probably, I think, around employee 400 something at Tesla. I was there for a two-year period of time, but it was a really interesting two years. Like the week that I joined, we were working on a program and it got canceled. And basically our head of engineering said, okay, we're going to start working on the Model S. And that was like the next big product. So from week one, I was working on Model S. Within that two-year period, we basically designed Model S and released it into market. We went IPO. I saw like a 10X growth in the company. I was like 4,000 people when I left. And, you know, we moved into a new headquarters and it was just like so cool to see that level of growth and that level of momentum. It was probably also one of the first times that I've seen the type of laser focus from leadership, especially Elon. It didn't matter what your job function was. If it was time to start ramping production, whether you're an assembly technician or you're an engineer or you're a supply chain manager, like you're going to find a way to jump in there and, and help out. And I, I really appreciated that kind of level of laser focus and that level of driving towards the mission. It really motivated me. Like I have a friend who's a senior director there who was out delivering Model 3s. Do whatever it takes. And I really appreciated that kind of mantra or that mentality that they instilled there. I think it's quite different now. You know, that was 10 years ago. I don't know how many employees they have now, maybe close to 100,000. So it was a really cool experience while I was there. So now look back, the project you were supposed to work on to be canceled and you worked on, you know, something different uh, as you expected. Do you think that was a good decision by the company? It was a really great decision by them. I think they really saw, you know, I can't go into the details of that particular project, but there really wasn't the return on investment. And I think there were a couple of different things that were changing within the company at the time that made that particular project make less sense. And so we always knew that we wanted to do an in-house developed vehicle after the Roadster. This project really was going to get in the way and delay things. And so it was definitely the right call to really focus on the Model S and accelerate that program into market. It's obviously been clearly very successful. Yeah, I think the, the result of the company valuation today, you know. <laughs> yeah, it's crazy. <laughs> That's fantastic. I try not to look at the valuation because then I get depressed. Maybe I should have stayed a little longer. <laughs> yeah, we never know, right? <laughs> uh, so where are you now? Now I'm at a company called Shaper Tools. We are a company based out of San Francisco. Our first product's essentially a handheld CNC machine called Origin. And if you're not familiar with uh, what a CNC machine is to the students out there, it is essentially an automated fabrication device or machine that if you're looking at your MacBook, chances are it's been made with a CNC machine. And so basically the way that the tool works is you select the design that you want to cut, whether you design it yourself in 2D or 3D, or you download a series of files from our Shaper Hub repository or you even design it on the tool itself. Basically using this tape fiducial markers, we scan the workpiece and we create a virtual digital version of it. So you can digitally place your files and basically cut by moving your gross movements and the tool will make all the fine adjustments for you. So we're basically trying to do auto correction for your hands and bring the functionality of a very expensive, very um, hard to maintain industrial CNC machine to the hand tool market that really hasn't changed in a hundred years or so. I've been there about five and a half years. I joined as employee nine. There were a couple of people from Google that came on board to Shaper. I followed suit 
Uh, we're probably around 80 people globally now, but launched the product into market. It's really a robotics tool more than it is a power tool. And so it's it's actually quite complicated. There's a vision system, display, precision mechanic. It was very technically challenging, but also kind of marketing challenges too. Like how do you explain to people how to use a new workflow that maybe they're not accustomed to? Two and a half years ago, our company was acquired by a, a large power tool company called Festool. They're based out of Germany. That's also been a unique experience for me and seeing that kind of growth, launching into new markets, building service centers, distribution networks, building up the business plan for Shaper has been really, really fun. Some students were asking me earlier, why did I make the jump? And really, I wanted to get exposure and responsibility for a lot of things outside of just product design in addition to that. And so I got what I wished for and more. It's been a really great experience. It sounds like a very successful story, you know, for startups. And within a very short period of time that your company was acquired by another company. And then I'm wondering, was that an exit strategy that you and your leadership envisioned to begin with, or it was just happened, you know, as an opportunity come along? I mean, hardware is hard. Everyone says that. It can be really difficult to grow a hardware business, but we were pretty confident that we had a product and series of products that would be well adopted into the market. And so it wasn't necessarily our strategy from the beginning to always sell. We were open to organically growing and taking on VC capital and and trying to scale the business that way. It just happened that we really, for a number of reasons, found that it was the right partner, a strategic partner that was looking at acquiring us. And we felt that this could really accelerate the growth in a way that probably would have been quite difficult for us to do on our own. You know, our parent company is already in a bunch of different regions. They have a lot of revenue. They have a lot of resources. And so we're like, okay, well, this might be a good strategic partnership that we could take advantage of and kind of scale Shaper beyond what we could do on our own. So that was kind of one of the big reasons that kind of swayed us in that direction. We were open to a couple different scenarios, but I think this was kind of like probably the best outcome for us. I think it's key that, you know, we were also open to when we were raising money, we were looking at traditional VCs and we had VC funding, but this company Festival was also a strategic investor of ours. It can be really challenging in the hardware space, especially in power tools and things like that to really understand for a normal VC, like exactly where this could go, because it's not a native thing to a lot of VCs. And so even though we did have VC funding, we're just much better suited for strategic partnership. And they got why we were doing this. And they were like, wow, this is the future of our business. You know, this is going to be the future of power tools. The old analog way of doing things by hand at some point is going to go away. And they wanted to be at the forefront of that. And so, you know, I think that having those strategic partnerships really, really helped us both from an investment standpoint, but also an acquisition. Yeah, you know, strategic partnership was so important. And I know a lot of corporate development function is also looking to not only on the potential investment, but also as an M&A target. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Story, give an example that, you know, when it works well, it works really well. So what is the biggest challenge? You know, I can only imagine that a company with five years old versus a company 100 years, or a company was born in Silicon Valley versus a company 100 years old in Germany. So tell us more about it. You know, how did this transition happen? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's definitely unfolded over time. And You know, they're obviously really interested in the technology, but it's a family-owned company for the past 90 years. They're quite large. They're well-established. They knew they wanted to be a part of Shaper in some way, but they've never acquired a Silicon Valley-based company before. And the companies that they've acquired previously are well-established companies that have been around for 30 years. 
we're still at the stage of experimentation around a, a bunch of different products because it's such a new category. And so sometimes there can be challenges of like, okay, well, what exactly is the business plan for this? You know, where is it going to lead in three years? And there's some speculation, you know, a lot of speculation, probably more speculation than a third, fourth generation product that is in a, a well-established category. And so sometimes there can be a mismatch in expectations around how we grow and what exactly we're presenting in terms of our roadmap um, and the speculation associated with it. But there's also cultural challenges. You know, you take for granted some of the terms that you use and the way that you speak. I've learned a lot about German culture. I've learned a lot about speaking with precision. Sometimes in American culture, we can almost be apologetic the way that we speak. And that just ends up being confusing for a lot of my counterparts in Germany. So just learning how to speak, sometimes it almost sounds like I feel like I'm saying something like disrespectful, but it's actually just being extremely clear. And then they respond really well to that. So there's been all kinds of things like that that have happened. I guess the good thing is our customers are very, very similar. And so we can at least align on, you know, they know hardware, we know hardware, they know our customers. We know their customers. They're very, very similar. We're all we're building really high-end tools. So there's not a lot of explanation that needs to go into that. You know, that's the good side of it. But a connected tool, how we develop software, it's all new. And so we have to do a lot of the education. It's kind of interesting thinking back at, you know, Google, where we had to educate them on hardware development. Now I'm in an opposite situation where I'm trying to educate them on software development. Lots of interesting kind of cultural and technology challenges for sure. Yeah, it sounds like a challenge, but yet fun and meaningful partnership. And also I see a lot of complimentary. So it's a win-win for everyone. Yeah, definitely. We've also taken on a few people from our parent company that have become part of Shaper who've added a ton of value. You know, we were very much a technology company. And when we got acquired, we really started building out other parts of our company, finance and sales and whatnot. And so we've kind of gotten a few people from our parent company that helped fill that out, which was, they're amazing and, and really helped us grow. You know, we've gotten into so many dealers and retailers in the US and we've launched into Canada, we've launched into Europe um, and we've built all of these things out in the past, you know, two years, three years. And it's really helpful to have their connections and, and whatnot. A lot of times, you know, you can spend so much time trying to like reinvent the wheel and all it takes is knowing one person that knows a person and can unlock all of this for you. And, and that we found that a lot with our partnership with Festival. So thanks for sharing that insight. I think only if we talk to you, otherwise we'd not be able to, you know, kind of see everything inside of the company. That's yeah. You were trained as a mechanical engineer and grew to a product designer. So could you summarize that your version of what does product designer do? Yeah, you'll probably hear product design thrown out in a couple different contexts. You know, in the software world, a product designer is kind of focused on user experience and UI design. When I'm talking about product design, when I'm thinking about product design, my own background, I'm, I'm really talking about product design engineering focused on physical product development. You know, to me, product design is at the center of the product development process. So they're deeply tied to the user and what the user requirements are and, and kind of thinking about how this product would be used and interacted with. But they're also responsible for kind of the system integration of everything and balancing all of the trade-offs to actually meet those user requirements. So that could be like, you know, technical requirements, performance, cost, weight, reliability, human factors. The product design engineer or product design group needs to not only be able to zoom out and think about the user kind of in a 10,000 foot view, 
um, during some stages, but they also need to be able to dive hyper into the details to be able to balance all of these trade-offs. And they almost need to become experts in all of these different fields so that they can balance all those trade-offs to make sure that the product doesn't get watered down and there isn't some trade-off that doesn't make sense and it actually becomes compelling for somebody to buy. Yeah, so although product design and a sort of product is a final deliverables, but it feels like a very much a cross-functional collaboration, cross-functional teamwork, as well as leadership to make things happen. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I think it really is, you know, the product design team is interfacing constantly with all of these different other teams and really trying to understand their requirements. And, you know, it's one of those things where I think we've all seen products where you kind of tell that something was driven more from a technical requirement than from a user requirement. And so that's where I think it's really important to have a strong PD team that can help balance that out and always think about the user, but be kind of driving all of these other functions to kind of get in line. So what takes to be a good product design? I mean, I think that kind of what I was mentioning, you kind of have to have almost two minds. You have to have one mind that you're you're able to kind of like in the early phases of product development and product design, you need to be able to think really creatively without being bogged down by the technical constraints. So, you know, this helps kind of put the user first, think about what feature sets are really important and how you might achieve them, but not get bogged down too much. And then at the later stages, as you're getting more into the detailed design, you kind of have to flip a switch and dive hyper into the details and almost become a mini expert in electrical engineering, mechanical engineering, antenna engineering, uh, human factors, whatever it might be, so that you can kind of push back, push and pull each one of those teams to achieve the you know stated goal. And so I think good PD really are able to kind of make that switch, but it really is important that you're able to kind of balance these trade-offs, get hyper into the details and see it all the way through into production. You know, kind of the basics of product development is kind of this overly simplified three-phase process, which is, you know, starting with the marketing requirements document, which is really the why and the who of what you're building. The, The PRD, the product requirements document, which is kind of the what, and the ERD, which is the how. I think while product design doesn't necessarily need to be responsible for every single one of these things, they are intimately involved through the entire process. And, you know, so the MRD is things like, who is your customer? How big is this opportunity? What's your product market fit, your value proposition that you're bringing to the table? It really doesn't get involved at all in like, what is the incarnation of this product? It's just like, where do we want to go and who are we building this for? And then I think the product design team really helps translate that into a concrete PRD, which is kind of the what of what you're building. It's the feature set. How are you going to achieve these kind of marketing goals? What's the behavior and functionality of the device that you're building? You know, it may even include user stories about how a user might interact with this. It really doesn't include anything technical. It really shouldn't have any technical specs. And then PD also helps translate that even further into the engineering requirements. And this is the how, exactly how are you going to achieve those things? What are the specific technical details that are going to get you the features and functionality to meet all of these specs? You know, this is, like I said, an overly simplified way of viewing it. You know, most successful companies are able to target these things. It may not be perfectly linear, but they at least know these three elements. And, you know, I've seen a lot of companies start with a marketing idea and go, straight to an ERD without even proving to themselves why a particular feature should exist. And if it actually is the right feature for the customer and not even proving that out, 
And I've seen it go the opposite way too, where it's like focusing only on the incarnation of this product. And we're going to have this exact chipset. We're going to have this without really understanding why are you building this? Who is it for? And what specific feature set does it need to have? Because without understanding all of that, all of those trade-offs that I was just showing, it's really hard to make those trade-offs because you don't actually know which one's more important. And the hardest thing about being a product designer is figuring out like which things are constraints and which aren't. Otherwise, it's like an unsolvable problem. And I think these are kind of like key elements to overall product development, but also good product design. I love it. You know, the simple version, I think that resonated a lot, right? First of all, the two mindset, you know, the shift from early stage to late stage, that's wonderful way to put it. And then the, the, the three, you know, requirement document, right? MRD, the PRD, the ERD, it's kind of, you know, the way you put it, like uh, who, what, and how. I, I think, you know, I couldn't find a better way to say it. So, <laughs> yeah, I think it's just like we try to overcomplicate it through a series of other processes. But, you know, these are really the, the core elements. And, you know, we don't always get it right. And it's not uh, something that's, like I said, so linear where we can get it perfectly dialed. We know exactly what it is and we're going to be able to prove out every single feature set perfectly. But like, this is really the goal. And certainly without these, you're going to be in trouble. And I, I think it helps not only know what you are trying to build, but just as importantly, what you're not trying to build. And that can be just as important. Thanks for listening to Oceanside Chat. We hope you enjoyed our show. If you liked it, please share the podcast and stay tuned for part two. We'll see you later.